Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to the Your Wealth podcast. I'm Gemma Dale, NAB Trades Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. For some time, investors have been struggling with where to find growth in their portfolios, not the PE expansion that the market has generously bestowed upon them at this late stage bull market, but the genuine long-term growth backed by fundamentals that people feel a bit more secure about. One of the key areas professionals have been looking to generate that growth is in emerging markets, looking to megatrends such as urbanisation, a growing and increasingly wealthy middle class, and technological leapfrogging that can really accelerate a nation's economic growth. In these volatile markets and volatile times, it can seem like a brave move to direct your wealth outside of tried and tested companies and jurisdictions. I think most investors are looking at their portfolios at the moment going, do I take risk off the table rather than thinking about where to go? And you want to be thinking about stuff that's going to be around when coronavirus and the US elections will be over. But safety generally doesn't make for a great long-term return. So today I'm joined by Eugene Tang, investment specialist at Martin Curry, who's going to make the case for growth opportunities in a dangerous world. Eugene, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me here, Gemma. I made that sound quite exciting, but it really is interesting times at the moment. The coronavirus is frankly something that no one had ever heard of before. None of us knew cold and flu were a coronavirus up until about six months ago and uh, maybe three months ago. And we're all trying to get our heads around, first of all, the personal impact because you know a lot of people are genuinely concerned about the health of their immediate loved ones and then you know people around the world. And then also what it's going to mean for markets and economies and so on. How are you guys looking at that? Yeah. So um, just to, just to uh, position things in terms of the personal impact, um, even in the least dangerous scenarios, it does have an impact on certain parts of the population. So older people, people who have uh, pre-existing conditions and uh, those who are immunocompromised. So not to belittle that, but uh, just to say we do recognise that it is a serious issue for people like that. And the uh, interesting thing is at a time like this, financial experts have had to become uh, instant health experts and uh, health experts have to have had to consider financial impacts. So I think we're all grappling with this from that point of view. What I will lean very heavily on today also is uh, a lot of my dad's uh, uh, wisdom. And one thing he always says to me, being an engineer, is that things are never as good or as bad as you think. So I will just uh, preface our discussion around that. Now, in terms of coronavirus, first of all, the economic picture is that uh, we do believe that in the short term, it will have a sizable negative impact on economies globally, in emerging markets, and even the Australian economy. So you will see GDP hits in a lot of countries in Q1 and Q2. We are quite comfortable with that. Secondly, as expected, the China Manufacturing and Services PMI, so the the indicator of the health of manufacturing and services, which is basically the economy, uh, came in quite bad, actually the worst it's uh, ever been. Keep in mind, these are all short-term hits. So what we expect is Chinese GDP this year will, rather than being 6%, will decrease by about 0.7 or 0.8 to 5.2 to 5.3. So that's significant, but it's nowhere close to end of the world. Um, Now, that's assuming no policy response. 
So the ironic thing is that as economies uh, start faltering in the short term, there will be a policy response and you will see a lot of market gyrations. Uh, global GDP being impacted uh, is significant too because of China. So China, if a lot of people, of a lot of your listeners don't realize, it's now close to 20% of global GDP and a third of global growth. So we expect global growth to possibly dip below 2% this year. Now, that's still a positive number, but um, not as good as it was, let's say, end of last year or early this year. Things were looking very rosy then. Um, we think that the regions that will uh, be hit the most would be places like Europe, uh, Germany in particular, probably Italy, and uh, some of those countries could be at risk of dipping into recession this year. Uh, keeping in mind, recession is basically two negative quarters of negative GDP. So it's a very technical term there. Um, Australia being very closely tied with China, uh, we will have our issues too uh, in the short term. So what we you will see over Q1 and Q2 of this year is a number of companies um, having major profit warnings sizable downgrades on earnings, uh, in particular on very cyclical names and names which are very exposed to the coronavirus. So that would be companies like travel companies, tourism companies. Um, there will also be supply chain disruptions. Once again, reminding you that's all short term, uh, but there will be very sizable policy actions, both fiscal and monetary, all around the world. So you've seen even Friday last week when there was the expectation of that happening, markets rallied rapidly. Um, now, as that comes through, we expect that over the second half of the year and into next year, there should be quite a good recovery on that. Now, in terms of the market outlook, um, it's pretty obvious that fear has set in for certain uh, participants. Now, the interesting thing is the the pullback in markets has been very, very shallow, actually. You're talking about maybe 10% over the last week. The the difference is the speed of it. So this was the biggest 10% downturn in history. So five days in a row. This is fascinating to me. So I had one of the guys uh, in our business and works on the technology side, not on the market side, saying this is the biggest fall uh, since the tech bubble. And I was like, you know, it's the biggest weekly fall since the tech bubble. The GFC was very different to this. It's really yes. fascinating having people uh, draw these uh, conclusions about experiences and you're like, it is nothing like the GFC yes. yet. So I'm not going to say it won't be, <laughs> but it's nothing like it at yes. this point. And particularly given the run-up we've had over the last few years, it's uh, taking 10% off the top. It hurts if you haven't felt it before, mm. but it certainly isn't, uh, it's not battle stations at this point? No, I mean, we, we've done a full review of all our stocks across all our portfolios in global equities, emerging markets, Aussie equities, and nothing has fallen enough for us to even be interested yet in terms of good quality companies. Um, where We basically have not made any changes in our portfolios because the long-term outlook for the stocks that we like is still very, very strong. And um, I, once again, leaning on my father's wisdom, uh, when you're investing, you need to be very clear of the difference between how you feel and how you invest. And at a time like this, those are two very different things. That's such an awesome introduction. And I'm also looking to my father in this situation because he's a virologist, right? So he's a scientist and a virologist 
who travels very extensively. So he has a quite a unique perspective on this. He's a plant virologist and plants don't move anywhere near as much as people do. So it's a different, it's an entirely different view. But it's fascinating how many people are suddenly experts in things they'd never heard of before. And his view uh, is very much, as you said, he's 70. He's looked at the uh, at the, at the mortality rates. This is what scientists do. He's looked at the mortality rates and said, well, I'm 70 now. The mortality rate for 70-year-olds is about 5%. You know, if I were one year younger, the mortality rate's about 3%. You know, it's fine, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he's got a heavy cold having come back from somewhere. It, <laughs> he's not getting tested. He's fine. Just just a bit of self-isolation. He's quite happy. But, yeah. The, the the scientists look at the data. He was also very happy that no children under nine have suffered any serious impacts, which is quite interesting. Something doesn't seem to be getting a lot of press. Yes, um, I think it's more the the uncertainty uh, that people face, uh, the fact that there's no vaccine. And then thirdly, I think uh, we live in a very globalised world now uh, and online especially. So ironically, the fear has spread virally. To, yeah. to use the pun. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, suddenly the word viral means so much more to all of us. And it has, it's had real impacts. I mean, first of all, a 5% mortality rate is nothing to laugh about. Yes. It's absolutely horrific for anyone affected. And no one likes getting sick in any way, whether they're very seriously ill or just mildly. And uh, certainly the consequences are being felt. I mean, the, there's a toilet paper shortage, which is hysterical. And hopefully by the time we publish this, the toilet paper shortage will be finished. But um, it's been an interesting experience so far. But you and I are going to talk about emerging markets and yes. you've talked about China already, that point about being a third of growth and the fact that China's been hit quite hard so far. Uh, a 20% of global GDP now, which is astonishing. I think most of us know that intuitively, but just to hear the number is really powerful. China's obviously the key emerging market that we look to, but there are many, many others. So do you want to talk to us about growth and where it's been coming from over the last few years? Yeah, it's quite an interesting one. Um, and one thing I would uh, position this bit uh, on is that the world around us changes and so do we. And often I think human nature is not to acknowledge that. So give you an example. Um, for the last 20, 30 years, Every this is only for people who are interested in cars, by the way. <laughs> but, but if you wanted a reliable car, you would say buy a Honda or, or a, a Toyota. The world has changed significantly. What a lot of people don't know is uh, Honda in particular has not spent much money on uh, technology. So their engines uh, output a kilowatt per uh, cc of engine capacity. It's not as good as the Korean manufacturers. But a lot of people still buy a Honda or Toyota every year, no matter what. And I think they have the same view of emerging markets. So we're talking about markets like India, China, Latin America, Russia. Now, the interesting thing with emerging markets is we're, we're using this overarching theme currently, which is IP leadership, so intellectual property leadership. The difference now is that these companies in emerging markets, a lot of them are world leaders. So within our emerging market strategy ourselves, more than half of our uh, companies are leaders in their field and they control almost all, if not all, of the intellectual property. I'll give you an example soon, but just back to your question of the growth. Right now, almost two-thirds of growth is coming from emerging markets 
And our projections over the next few years is that emerging markets will grow at three times the speed of developed markets. So the question an investor needs to ask themselves is, if I want growth, why am I not in the market that is growing really strongly? But not only that, emerging markets are no longer the markets that we think of. So 20 years ago, people would say things like, I uh, manufacture shampoo and emerging market people uh, generally do not have much shampoo, so I'll sell them lots of shampoo and make lots of money. So selling them uh, cheaper, uh, less technologically advanced items. And secondly, they would say, oh, emerging markets are not very, um, they're not value-add economies where you can make a lot of profits. So what they do is you just put the parts together and they export it to us. That's changed significantly. That's quite interesting. So, you know, when I was doing economic development at university, it was by far the part of economics that I found most interesting. They would talk about the ways that countries drag themselves out of poverty and you know, the key ones were cheap labor, right? It would be mostly manufacturing cheap labor, textiles, that sort of stuff. And so I imagine a lot of people, you know, my education was a little while ago now, but a lot of people still have that mentality that that's what you're, you're dealing with, countries with enormous amounts of cheap labor. One of the stats that I find absolutely fascinating, or points because I don't know the exact data, is the proportion of uh, Indians who have degrees in technology and engineering, right? It is Nothing like Australia. Yes. We talk about Australia getting left behind in STEM and we don't push our students to go and focus on technology and engineering. That's not necessarily what we do. Whereas in India, that's what you do. It used to be economics. All Indian students would do economics now. Yes. It's technology and engineering. Yes, so a lot of people may not realise this, but one of the world's leading tech companies in, in the US, Microsoft, around half of their staff are Indian engineers. Mm. So... One of the things that so we're talking about, the fact that these economies, they may have started with cheap labor, but they're moving into these really sophisticated yes. areas. One of the other things that has really concerned people about emerging markets is this idea that it's it's kind of wild west territory for investors, right? Yes. It's poor governance, this issue of poor governance, a lot of regulatory risk, uh, the kinds of things you don't want to find out about as an investor, child labor, uh, exploitation of workers, this kind of stuff. Do you see that changing or do you see that it has changed? It has changed in a lot of uh, emerging markets. So just to give you an idea, um, the we like to view emerging markets more as a group of mega cities. So you're talking about cities like Tokyo, Delhi, Shanghai, Mexico City, Sao Paulo, Mumbai. And that's those are the key drivers of emerging markets. Now, when you look at those cities, they are huge. Right now, uh, Delhi has 26 million people. Um, and in, uh, in about 10 years' time, it will have 39 million people. So you're talking about a whole country in one city. And those countries, uh, those cities per capita are um, amongst the top in terms of uh, all measures, financial measures in the, compared to OECD countries even. Now, the interesting thing there is they have young populations which are rapidly urbanizing and going into the middle class. So what that does is it grows your GDP and you also have productivity growth. Now, they are the, the corporate governance has increased tremendously. Um, so especially when you're, when you're investing via uh, a manager that values ESG, like ourselves, we actually engage with these companies 
and we make sure that we engage with them actively and that they are addressing these ESG issues. Now, having said that, there is still a very widespread of uh, governance uh, within emerging markets. So uh, you do have to tread carefully, but it's changing rapidly. You have you have world leaders in, in emerging markets. It's really interesting because ESG is often seen as a bit of a, um, a nice to have perhaps for some investors. But when they look at emerging markets, they see how critical it is, just fundamental levels of, of governance and, and corporate responsibility. Um, you know, when we, when we have award rates and very simple obligations in Australia that have been around for a long time, it's easy to look at another country that doesn't have those things and realise that uh, that change needs to happen. But when they're wanting to work with big global fund managers, I suspect everybody gets on board pretty quickly. Yeah, and it, it's an interesting one because uh, they a lot of these companies are looking to uh, grow their investor base globally. So uh, people may not realise, but... Um, Martin Curry has a, with the UNPRI Principle for Responsible Investing Group, uh, which is the predominant ESG uh, judge, if you will, uh, globally for investment managers. We have a AAA plus rating with them, which puts us in the top uh, 7% of fund managers globally on ESG. So uh, what we find is a lot of these companies actually come to us and they will say to us, how can we get our ESG or sustainable uh, rating better? Uh, with our stakeholders. And we think that's very important, not so much from a person's personal ethical point of view, but that ESG issues impact the long-term returns of your investments. So, uh, for example, there are certain investments that we think do not have a future uh, going forward. So not to go down this rabbit hole too much, but uh, give you an example, tobacco. Mm. Uh, We think it's not a good investment because... To put it bluntly, you're killing your clients. <laughs> yes, yeah, generally not considered to be one of the uh, the greater growth strategies that people could contemplate. <laughs> so what are the key industries and trends that you look for? So you're going into these markets, you're looking in megacities for very sophisticated, highly educated populations working with intellectual property. Oh, it sounds very exciting. So what are the key industries that you're looking at, the key kinds of companies? Yeah, sure. So uh, one of them, which um, I, I, I do bang on about quite a fair bit, uh, is uh, electric vehicles. Now, the, everyone's talking about Tesla, but there is a whole supply chain when it comes to electric vehicles. And if you remember what Warren Buffett always said, which was, you do not want to invest in the capital intensive part of a supply chain. So perfect example is things like um, airlines. Uh, it's very hard to make money from airlines as a long-term investor. Those are very cyclical uh, companies which uh, have very high capital expenditure. So within electric vehicles, we like the battery manufacturers because there are only five of them pretty much. Four of them are in emerging markets, so Korea and China, and one of them is Panasonic in Japan. So uh, two of them that we invest in, Samsung SDI and um, LG Chem, uh, when we talked about this last about six months ago, from that point till now, their share prices have gone up about 20 to 25%, even in the current environment. Wow. So, And that's when you make the point about Tesla, quite interesting when Tesla went through the roof and then came back down again. Um, they are, as you say, very intellectually intensive industries, right? They're very sophisticated industries, places to be. What are the other types of industries that you're looking at in that space? Yep. So uh, 
very interesting one is mobile phones. So a lot of people don't realize that almost all of the intellectual property in a mobile phone comes from Asia. And it's built there. It's not only designed there, it's also built there. And I'm not talking, uh, Apple is different. It's it's designed in California. Yeah, they like to the tell team. you that quite a bit. Yeah, But it's made in, in emerging markets. Mm. Now, a lot of other phones, Android phones, all designed, made in Asia or emerging markets. So give you an example. Um, the mobile phone industry right now, the, the market size is worth about $1.3 billion. It hasn't grown for the last three years. That's fascinating. And why is it not growing? Is it because prices per unit are coming down? No. Have we reached saturation point and no one needs a new phone every 12 months? Yeah, that's right. So we've reached a point where mobile phone technology for a number of years hasn't increased that much and most people can do what they want. So they use the phone generally until they die out. Unless you're like me and I love phones or I usually think about changing mine after three months, but uh, I hold myself back. But um the point now is that we have a number of technological advances that we think is going to reinvigorate the mobile phone market. Now, one of them is cameras. So one of the companies that we own, Sunny Optical in Hong Kong, uh, you have cameras now that are very close to the quality of a single lens reflex camera. So the ones that the big ones that your dad would take to uh, weddings, they are not far off that quality now in your pocket. Not only that, you have multiple cameras within the phone. So you've got ultra wide angle. So you get the whole room. Mm. You don't have to change lens or you don't have to say to everyone, can you please squeeze in? You can just take the picture now with the press of a button. Uh, Samsung just released their S20 recently. That has a hundred times zoom. Now it's not perfect quality, but it's usable. And the people who love photography will always tell you the best camera is the one that you have on you right then. Yeah. That's really, that's so powerful. I find that really interesting. Um, as someone who has 20,000 photos on their phone, I probably pre-children would have had four and now I have 20,000, right? It's nothing like having kids. And it is impossible to find a photo of both my children looking good at the same time, like absolutely impossible. So anything that makes that a little bit easier is very attractive. And you can see people going, I'll pay more for that. I will, you know, do my best to upgrade to the technology that's available. Yeah, and just... And just to add on to the camera, uh, the, the phone issue, uh, we have folding phones now. I don't understand why that's so cool, but you tell <laughs> me about it. So let me explain to you folding phones. Uh, it's cool for two reasons. Number one, uh, you have social influences now, right? So from a design point of view, that is very cool. You get a phone the size of a tablet uh, uh, when it folds out to the size of a makeup uh, I'm not sure what compact. you call it. Compact, compact? Yes, yes, that's the word. Mm. Uh, in your pocket when you're not using it. How many times does it fold? Uh, so the Samsung one, I might be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it's more than 100,000 times, maybe 200,000 times before you have failure. And that's only their first generation. Yeah, right. So it's, it's absolutely incredible. So we think this will reinvigorate things because uh, – there are a segment of the market, we think quite a large segment, probably more than 10%, that will pay for a phone like that because either you can have it very small mm. or you're going to be the coolest kid in class. <laughs> it's, and it is a significant technological enhancement. I think for, for most of us over the last few years, it's like, look, does it matter whether you have the iPhone 7 or the iPhone 8? 
I didn't move from a six until it basically broke in a thousand pieces. And I was like, I'm not getting anything more out of this. It, um, it was hard to see the value. The thing for me, by the way, just in case you haven't found one of these, because I tell people about it and they're like, no, that's amazing. Dual SIM cards. Yes. So I have a work phone and a personal phone. And it was partly because I didn't want to have my 20,000 photos on my work phone. Um, Dual SIM cards, amazing. So I can have them both in the one phone. It's great. Yes, a lot of people don't realize, but dual SIM cards have been around for many, many years in emerging markets. Really? Yes. And what was the motivation in emerging markets? Uh, Very similar to the rest of us. You will have a number of mobile phone lines Mm. and you just want everything in one. Yeah. And so emerging market uh, manufacturers designed that. And Apple Apple, uh, only introduced that in Australia last year. Emerging markets have had this for many, many years. Oh, I'm way. always behind the times with this stuff. <laughs> Actually, one final thing on, mm. on mobile phones. 5G uh, is coming. Mm. And once again, emerging markets have the better technology. Yeah, I think anyone who's used some of the uh, currently available technology in Australia wouldn't be at all surprised by that, yes. uh, particularly when you're talking about the megacities and so on. One of the other things you've mentioned is cybersecurity, which again is not something we associate with emerging markets, or if we do, it's probably for the wrong reasons. Talk to me about cybersecurity. Yeah, so it's going to be a very interesting issue going forward. You have the proliferation of uh, data, personal data all around the world. And we now live in a situation where, especially for younger people, their whole life is on the internet. Uh, you can see everything that they do, even things that you should not be seeing. Um, and uh, for people who have children, they, that's probably a concern of theirs. So we think uh, one of the themes that we're looking at very closely is companies that will have the ability to control that or to lessen the impact on that on population. So what I mean by that is um, you might have a situation where you want to make sure that the something that you put out. So, for example, if you put a picture on Facebook, you might want a situation where it only stays there and it doesn't go every, anywhere else. So there are companies out there that are working very hard on making sure that your personal data only goes to where you want it to go and it's only used for what you want it to use it for. And uh, that's a trend that you'll see grow quite significantly. The the other trend that we're seeing in uh, cybersecurity um, is that it's it's quite an interesting one. Um, actually, not so much cybersecurity, but the use of AI within uh, retail, so selling. So once again, this is where emerging markets are way ahead. So give you an example. If you buy something on Amazon, American company, if you bought, let's, you like tennis, right? Let's say, and you bought a tennis t-shirt 12 months ago, and now you look and it's December, just before Christmas, Amazon often will say, here's another tennis t-shirt, but you, you don't really need a tennis t-shirt because you, you've only played a few times the last 12 months. What Alibaba has is a very advanced AI that knows that you, you bought a tennis t-shirt 12 months ago, you like blue, you like Nike, and uh, so what they can do is they go, well, the AI will basically say, you haven't bought any tennis shoes. And it shows you just before Christmas, a blue Nike tennis shoe, which goes well with the tennis shirt that you bought. Much more advanced. 
That's really, that's probably quite disturbing, I think, for many of us. But that's quite interesting. The one that I found, um, sometimes AI can be underwhelming. The one that blew my mind was when I had to purchase a flight for a funeral to a place that I would never otherwise go, right? So I bought a flight to this funeral uh, and back and I paid whatever the current price was. So I wasn't price sensitive at that point in time. I was just going to buy it and go. And I was then promoted flights to that location for like two years. I was like, oh, you are not learning, right? You are not learning. I have never searched for that place again and I never will. It was a one-off. It was for a specific purpose. And someone's wasting a lot of money yes. advertising the, to me. The, the selling, the AI that sells uh, online is actually in many ways more advanced in emerging markets than in um, in developed markets. So Alibaba itself has more than a billion customers and they have more customers than Amazon, eBay and Walmart and all the American retailers combined. That's astonishing. It is astonishing. The numbers are mind blowing. And keep in mind to Australians who have got not only that, people. but but keep in mind our forecasts for Alibaba and some of those uh, Chinese internet companies is very uncertain in a good way because they their their ramp to growth is so large that uh, it's quite incredible actually. So a lot of Australian investors have ridden the emergence of China in particular as an economic superpower. And they, they do think about other areas, but China in particular, people will hold it. So they'll buy via the ASX, they'll hold resources, and they will invest in Australian consumer brands that are attractive to Chinese consumers, so Treasury Wine Estates and A2 Milk and so on. Do you think that you know, those Asian tech brands and so on are somewhat more compelling? I, I wouldn't say compelling. What I would say, though, is that investing overseas and in emerging markets gives you a lot of other sectors and types of companies that you cannot access here in Australia. So if you give you an example, right, if you believe that China, well, it already has grown, but if you believe that it's going to become a major economic superpower, then you can either go straight to the source of the growth or you can invest in a secondary way, which is you could argue buying things like A2 Milk, Treasury Wines, Australian stocks, or you could buy, let's say, a property in Australia even, you could argue, uh, because that's linked to Chinese growth. Mm. Uh, so that's one view. The other view, which is my preference, is I like to have my eggs in many different baskets because the future is uncertain. Um, and so you, you do need to diversify, but in a good way. So you get growth in Australia, but you also make sure you have growth overseas because as we've been talking, overseas companies have incredible growth prospects that we don't have here in Australia. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct about that. And most investors understand that. It's just the challenge of investing in something that you're far less familiar with, I think, in many cases. Yeah, and, and just um, one other trend I, I thought I might bring up, which, is, uh, which I find very interesting, is uh, there's, a, there's a concept going around, especially in uh, emerging markets, but also in places like Europe and uh, parts of America. It's a, a word called Hallyu, which is it's a Korean word, which means the Korean wave. So if you, if you think back to uh, Korea's position, it's a country next to China, 
which has had uh, political issues with China for centuries, if, if not millennia. And uh, so strategically, what they decided was you can't compete with China head on, uh, which is called uh, hard power. So what they decided to do was they decided to focus on soft power. So you might have heard this phenomenon of uh, things like uh, K-pop, K-dramas, K-TV. And uh, we saw Parasite winning the Oscar recently. Now, to anyone who has been observing emerging markets, that was not a surprise at all. Um, the interesting thing with the Korean wave is it's creating investment opportunities for us. So the theme that I'm talking about with regards to the Korean wave is beauty and healthcare. So this one I do know about because beauty influencers who I don't follow assiduously, let's say, um, but Korean uh, beauty routines are considered like the absolute best in the world and they're hilarious for someone like me because they involve like 12 different steps. It goes on for days, but these women have the most beautiful skin you've ever seen. And so it's, it's very broadly understood by women who are interested in this in Australia for sure. Have you seen uh, BB cream in Woolies and Coles even? Mm. They've appeared the last few years. That's a Korean invention. Mm. And they've had that for many years, since the 90s, I believe. Mm. But um, beyond that, some of the trends that you're seeing in health, in health and beauty, one is actually uh, more beauty products for men. Yes. Good luck to you, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> so you will start seeing more men traditionally use moisturizer, but it goes all the way even to makeup. I See, I've heard about men's makeup for quite some time and it doesn't, you know, with the exception of Mardi Gras, it tends not to take off in a big way. But it'd be interesting to see how that one goes. So that's one trend we're starting to see hit in uh, some emerging market countries. It's already a trend in Korea. Um, another trend that we think of is what we call prejuvenation for Gen Z people. So what does that mean? Okay, so you, you know the concept of rejuvenation, Is right? it sort of anti-preventing aging? Is That's that right. Plan? Right. So the, the products there will be to preempt uh, aging issues. Uh, so that's one big uh, trend that we see in uh, beauty and healthcare. Another big one, which is once again for uh, younger uh, consumers, is uh, fantasy makeup. Is, is that sort of trying to look like a mermaid and that sort of thing? Yes, so fantasy makeup could be like, um, I like, uh, maybe for our older viewers, remember David Bowie from the 70s? Oh, yeah, okay. yeah we've Man seen this before, that. haven't we? That's mm. fantasy makeup. Mm. And the interesting thing is, if you follow uh, Gen Z um, social influences on Instagram, that's a trend now. And, and they are doing things like, uh, you've got makeup that looks like a, like a mask around your face, mm. but it's actually makeup. Yeah, And so if you want to copy that, you're going to have to get it somewhere. Now, the interesting thing people don't realize is there is a lot of intellectual property leadership and brand value in emerging market brands. So, for example, the Korean brands, and we have one of those talks, LG Health um, H&H, and um, they have uh, night creams that sell for about $200 per jar, very small jar. You're talking about 100 milliliters. Mm. Now, people are buying it because it's a Korean brand, Yeah, yeah which yeah. is very different to 20 years ago. There's Yeah, there's extraordinary brand value in beauty products and it's uh, 
if you ever want to just go down a rabbit hole, Instagram or YouTube influences in this space. It's, it is quite extraordinary, actually, if you're not into it, um, but you want to see how much money is in it and how much influence these people have and the fact that you can sell, as you say, 100 mils or 100 grams of product for $200. Yeah. Uh, and the brand value attached to that is all about the brand. Yes. Put the same product in a different package and no one's yes. buying it. And I would encourage your, your male viewers uh, to be intrepid Mm. and uh, go to their local Sephora, they will notice mm. that a lot of the aisles there, especially the face masks, mm. are all Korean now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Years ago, not years ago, but SK2 was, I think it's a Japanese brand. Yes. Um, it might be owned by one of the big European ones now because so, they, yes. they do tend to get aggregated quite quickly. Estee Lauder goes and buys them all up or something. But it is it is quite fascinating. You know, we tend to think of... Uh, we tend to think in investments about these very serious hardcore products, but beauty is unbelievable. Like it's quite, mm. it's quite extraordinary. Um, and you will also, anyone who's listening who has a teenage daughter will know how much money you can spend and how quickly. Uh, so one of the questions I was going to ask you is about coronavirus because all of these different things we're talking about are demand-driven. And as we... As we see how this plays out, and we don't know, you know, the critical thing is we do not know, and I think anyone who pretends otherwise uh, is looking at even uncertain data. One of the things that's most important to recognise about the data that we currently have is it's based on testing rates, and not everybody's getting tested. There are insufficient test kits. It's, it's very difficult to know what the outcome is likely to be. Do you see that? Do you see any scenario where that has really significant long-term implications? Uh, first of all, we think the likelihood of that at this point in time is quite low. Having said that, probability-wise, yes. So if we have a situation where the coronavirus spreads much uh, wider than it currently has and a lot more people die than have died already, then yes, it will have a significant impact on uh, long-term returns and outlooks for economies. But at this point in time, there is none of, of that on the horizon at all. Our long-term view on the stocks that we like is still very, very strong. Um, once again, leaning on my father's wisdom, uh, as an investor, he, he has told me uh, from the time I first look, started looking at the stock market when I was about 12, which is he used to say to me, you want to pray that there's a time where the market has significant falls and you have a lot of cash. <laughs> and you were saying, though, that you, prices are not yet where, at a point where you're starting to look at other things that you might have thought were otherwise. No, they're, they're, they're down 10% on average, roughly. Uh, emerging market shares, actually, for an Australian investor, believe it or not, um, if you find the right manager, our emerging market fund is positive right now for the year and yeah, even right. for last month. Mm. And the reason for that is twofold. Number one, uh, the Aussie currency has helped us a lot. Mm. So if you were invested overseas, the shares have dropped, but the currency has dropped too. So mm. that gives you a bit of a buffer. So if you were just in Aussie shares, you've lost maybe 10%, maybe mm. 12, 13%. But uh, emerging markets, for example, our fund, you're actually up for the year by a few percent. Not only that, a lot of the US stocks that were hit were what they call the FANGs, so your Facebook, mm. Amazon, Google. 
an emerging market uh, fund obviously doesn't invest in that. But beyond that, what we found happened in Asia, especially in China, was that they got hit very early Hmm. and now they're getting back to work. So you're starting to see supply come through again. It will take a while, but it looks like they're on a recovery trend and their markets are down much less now compared to the rest of the world. I think China, the other day when I looked, was down about 3%. Yeah, interesting. Okay, so... Eugene, Martin Curry produces a lot of fantastic content. And most of the things that we've talked about are relatively new for the investor base that we talk to. You know, most of us are not familiar with some of the brands that you've talked about or we have a loose idea of how the technology works but not a great idea of what market they're addressing. So where do people go to find out more about what you guys are up to, some of the concepts you're talking about? Yep, so they can go to martincurry.com. That's Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, Curry, C-U-R-R-I-E.com. And they can find out all about the company. If they go to NabTrade or the ASX, we do have a couple of uh, Australian equities products uh, and also our our emerging market uh, exchange traded fund. So those three exchange traded funds, the stock codes are for Aussie equity income, EINC, real asset income, RINC, and our emerging market uh, exchange traded fund, EMMG. Eugene from Martin Curry, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Gemma. Thank you so much also for listening. We love it as always. We also love to hear from you. So if you have any topics you'd like to hear about or guests you'd like to hear from, please just email your suggestions to yourwealthatnab.com.au. I will say if you have any service-related queries, please don't email that inbox. We are not as uh, proactive as our service teams are checking them. So I'm very sorry. We found a couple of emails and they were like, oh my God, that's not for us. And we forwarded them on, but uh, perhaps a little later than you would have liked. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Gemma Dale. Hope to speak to you again. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth at nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.